The UN says that 2022 was the deadliest year for Palestinians since systematic records began in 2005. Israeli security forces killed 151 Palestinians in the occupied West Bank territories and in East Jerusalem. 24 Israelis were also killed in violence. 2023 shows no sign of change. Tensions are high in Israel and the occupied territories after a spate of attacks against Israeli citizens and raids on Palestinian communities by the Israeli military. There is also the return to power of long-term Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, this time leading the most right-wing government in Israel's history. The situation looks dire. The UN and international officials are calling for urgent action to ease anger, calm tensions and stop the rumbling violence. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes-Young. And this week, we're turning our focus to Israel and Palestine to understand what's driving the latest round of violence and ask, are we headed for another intifada? Before we start, if you want to get all the latest episodes of Beyond the Headlines as soon as they come out, then just hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. The Palestinian people are hurting now. You feel it. You can just feel it. Your grief and frustration in the United States, we can feel it. But we've never give up on the work of peace. So even if the ground is not ripe for, at this moment to restart negotiations, the United States and my administration will not give up on trying to bring the Palestinians and Israelis and both sides closer together. Now, as President of the United States, my commitment to that goal of a two-state solution has not changed in all these years. Two states along the 1967 lines were mutually agreed to swaps remain the best way to achieve uh, equal measure of security, prosperity, freedom and democracy for the Palestinians as well as Israelis. That's US President Joe Biden speaking from the West Bank when he was there in July 2022. He's been calling for calm and saying America is still working towards a two-state solution to the over 75-year conflict. But it's been well over a decade since the last round of talks between Israeli and Palestinian negotiators on reaching a settlement. Today, it can feel like peace is further away than ever. And in the meantime, the tension builds. Many of the Palestinians killed in the last year were during raids in the West Bank towns like Janine against groups that were taking up arms against Israel. To understand exactly what's been happening, we spoke to Hugh Lovett, a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. So obviously there is the, the bigger context, which I don't think needs to, to be explained too much, which is the context of, of occupation and years of Israeli settlement policies. But I think that's important to note because what's happening, yes, it's been happening over the last year, but it's actually also been in the making for, for, for years before that. But more specifically, um, I think you can trace this back really to, to the beginning of last year, last spring, when we did see some Palestinian attacks against Israeli civilians in Israeli towns such as Tel Aviv. And that provoked, of course, a Israeli security response. And these Palestinians were from uh, geographically diverse areas. Some from, were from within Israel and some were also from uh, the northern West Bank towns. And so Israel's response in the West Bank was very much to increase its uh, security 
incursions into these northern West Bank towns, especially Jenin, uh, and then later Nablus. And this security response, in my view, while it might have been tactically successful in terms of perhaps arresting Palestinians and killing Palestinians from the point of view of, of, of Israel, is actually something that's been driving this increase in violence and instability uh, in, the, in the northern West Bank. And what I would also say is what it's doing also is the initial attacks were perpetrated by individual Palestinians. But the Israeli security response is actually also driving a, a remobilization of Palestinian armed groups which to me is sort of one of the biggest dynamics over the last year. Given the level of bloodshed over the last year, some are already comparing the situation to the build-up to the Second Intifada uprisings in the late 1990s. What exploded was years of fighting and attacks throughout the occupied territories. And a lot of people are starting to say this is now the beginning of a Third Intifada. And having worked on this file for quite some time, I've always avoided saying that. But I think clearly... The, the context and the dynamics are pushing uh, in that direction. And I think this will have huge implications you know, for the Palestinians themselves, of course, for the future of the Palestinian national movement, the future of the Palestinian Authority, um, but also you know, will likely do away with the final remnants of what is this uh, so-called Oslo peace process, which was supposed to, um, you know, to create a Palestinian state and, um, on the 1967 borders. So I think it's something if this goes does move forward, it has deep, uh, deep ramifications. And to add a bit more pessimism, you know, I think the moment to stop what's happening, you know, or to de-escalate, that moment I think was two years ago. Um, it would have been Palestinian elections had that gone forward and, and succeeded. I think we'd be in a different reality. I think now the political and security uh, dynamics are have moved to such a point that I think it will be very difficult to, to dial this back all the way. So now it's about, I think, unfortunately, how you can actually try to mitigate the worst outcome possible. And Hugh raises a key issue here. Behind this anger among the Palestinian community is a moribund Palestinian authority. President Mahmoud Abbas is ageing and is now deeply unpopular, according to polls. But he's not had to face an election since 2006. While Mr. Abbas won the presidential election at the time, his Fatah movement that runs the Western-backed Palestinian Authority lost their parliamentary majority to the hardline Hamas movement, which opposes peace with Israel. This led to a standoff and an armed conflict as Hamas took control of the Gaza Strip and expelled Fatah, who kept control of the West Bank. The Israel international community absolutely refuse to, to recognize those results and recognize that government because they take a very, very hard line position against Hamas, which they consider to be a terrorist organization. And so the international community, Israel, uh, in conjunction with uh, Mahmoud Abbas himself, then sanctioned this Hamas government and, and in doing so did a lot to provoke a Palestinian civil war in the ensuing months. And then this is what led to the current divide. There have been numerous attempts to hold a new round of elections including a promising push to hold a vote in May 2021. However, just weeks before the election, Mr Abbas cancelled the ballot because, he said, Israel was preventing Palestinians from voting in occupied East Jerusalem. Many, however, suspected that this was a cover as he knew he would lose his seat. I think that remains one of the biggest inhibitors and that there's no indication that the US or European Union would necessarily take a different position if elections happened today. There was uh, an attempt, uh, and actually I think a quite a serious attempt to hold elections in 2021, in the first half of 2021. The same, the issues I just mentioned were very much present and contributed. 
But ultimately, I think it was also about um, President Mahmoud Abbas himself who decided uh, to find a reason to, to pull the plug and blaming it on Israel, saying Israel would allow elections in East Jerusalem, which is true. But ultimately, I think it was Abbas realizing he would lose presidential elections to another Fatah candidate and also about internal disarray within the Fatah party itself. Um, I think so. I think it was much more about Fatah than Hamas in this instance. And this loops us back to our current conversation, because, you know, when you look at, at the, the drivers uh, on the Palestinian side, at least in terms of what's happening in the West Bank, yes, you have Hamas, you have Islamic Jihad. But fundamentally, I think this is a lot about Fatah and the internal state of Fatah. So the locks on the gates of the Palestinian parliament remain in place and Palestinians across the West Bank, as those in Gaza, are still governed by a leadership they have had no choice in selecting. Now, a lot of these West Bank raids would once have been conducted by Israeli forces alongside Palestinian security forces. With American funding and weapons, the Palestinian security forces have long worked closely with Israel on security. But over the last year or so, They've been very absent. This has put uh, Palestinian security forces in a, in, a, I think in a very difficult position because let's remember they are Palestinians themselves, you know, from the towns, from, the, from Palestine. And so they're also obviously affected by the same frustrations and anger as, uh, as any other Palestinian. And they work for the Palestinian Authority. And many Palestinians, put it nicely, consider the Palestinian uh, Authority uh, dead weight be more blunt, actually think of the Palestinian Authority as Israel's number one collaborator in terms of maintaining uh, control and order uh, uh, in the West Bank and suppressing Palestinian uh, armed groups and Palestinian activism against Israel. So this is the first point to say. And I think so we've started to see um, over the last year, we've started to see some members of the Palestinian security forces, especially the Palestinian uh, security agencies, intelligence agencies, defecting to some of these armed groups, some of them actually quite high profile officers. But then the, the second dynamic is PA is not, in my view, lacking weapons like guns and ammunition to deal with the situation. What it's lacking is legitimacy. Um, so it's not a matter of, um, as the Americans are, are doing, of, of pushing uh, President Mahmoud Abbas, who's the head of the PA, to crack down on the armed groups. I don't think that really will work. So tensions in the West Bank are high. Israel is conducting raids almost daily and Palestinians are being killed. Some of them are armed gunmen many others are civilians caught in the crossfire. Children have been shot. Famous journalist Shireen Abu Akleh of Al Jazeera was also shot and killed. And meanwhile, the reality of life for Palestinians is also ever-present. Israeli checkpoints across the West Bank, illegal settlement expansions, few job opportunities and a rising cost of living. And as much of this is anger directed at Israel and the occupation, this is also about anger and frustration at the lack of leadership or legitimacy within the Palestinian community. The first intifada or uprising against Israel in the West Bank and Gaza Strip broke out in 1987 and it lasted about six years, ending with the Oslo Accords and the peace process. The second began in 2000 and ended with Israel withdrawing from the Gaza Strip and also the construction of the West Bank security barrier. So if Hugh is worried that we're heading for another intifada, what exactly does that mean? I think difficulty in, in describing when the third one starts is that I think the third one will be different in some ways from what we've seen in the past. So we not, might not recognise it until it's, it really hits us in the face. But to me, one of the, the things that I would look at is one, um, the extent of mobilisation and sustainability of mobilisation. 
So in the past, uh, over the past few years, we have seen outbursts of uh, uh, protests, some of it nonviolent protests. We've also seen outbursts of violence, but they've tended to be um, usually geographically limited and short duration. Now, there's there's a few exceptions. There was the so-called unity intifada, um, which some Palestinians use this term, which was during the last Gaza war when we did start to see you know, a lot of popular nonviolent mobilization amongst Palestinian communities in Israel and in the West Bank and Jerusalem. But that actually, you know, ultimately didn't last that long. And it was very much, I think, then uh, then interrupted by the by the war in Gaza. But nevertheless, you know, it's about duration and, and scope. And I think when we look at what's happening now, you know, we're not maybe not quite there yet. But this has now been going, this has been building for the last year. But it's also been spreading for the last year. So, and I think we can use the word clashes. You know, I don't think it's right to use clashes unless when we talk about how Israel cracks down on protesters. But this really is a low intensity conflict between um, Palestinian armed groups and and uh, and the Israeli security forces. So we are starting to see these clashes in Jenin, uh, but also Nablus. Uh, over the last few days in Jericho and the Jordan Valley, and we've seen um, also an increase in, in protests and, and clashes in uh, Jerusalem or Palestinian Jerusalem uh, neighborhoods. So the question to me is, will it spread further south to Hebron? And I think if, it, if Hebron wakes up, then I think that's a, a big deal, which hasn't happened until now. Hugh also points to these armed factions that are leading the fight against Israeli security forces and carrying out attacks against Israelis. He points out that these have been largely dormant for the last 20 years since the end of the Second Intifada. That, coupled with high-profile defections, is a major concern. And all this within a context of, you know, that last year was the most violent year uh, since the end of the Second Intifada for Palestinians, um, a context where there's no political horizon, and a context in which the PA itself, as I said, and PA leadership is extremely unpopular and is seen as extremely unlegitimate. So I think you have a lot of these factors that are now starting to align. And so if this continues over the next few months, then I think we are really entering into Fada territory. While others also worried about recent events, not everyone is so sure we're heading for a third intifada. Aaron David Miller is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, focused on the Middle East. From 1988 to 2003, Aaron worked for six separate secretaries of state as an advisor on Arab-Israeli peace negotiations, and he worked to try and broker a two-state solution. I think if you had an analyst from CIA, the Palestinian Authority's best um, analyst, and um, Israel Shinbet on a panel, and you asked them that question, they would probably respond, if they were honest, that not even Pythia, the oracle at Delphi, reading the best of Godin trails, could basically determine what the arc and trajectory of the Israeli-Palestinian confrontation is going to look like. Um, you can, of course, rely on, on history, the past is prologue, um, but even then, certainly in the case of the first intifada, no one predicted it, nor were they prepared for it. Um, what happened in 2000 and 2001 might have been a little more predictable, I remember, Shortly before Camp David's summit in May, uh, we were in um, in Israel and Ramallah talking to the Israelis and Palestinians about preparing for some sort of diplomatic gathering, not yet agreed on a summit at Camp David. And Israeli intelligence, including the prime minister, was talking about, in fact, he said, Ehud Barak said that 
the the sky is blue, the sea is calm, but we have major concerns. Um, I'm not sure even Israeli intelligence could have predicted what eventually ensued for the next several years. Um, I can only say this, that I would say that there's a perfect storm that's been brewing. Aaron agrees with Hugh on the fundamental drivers of today's problems. Number one, you have a 56-year-old Israeli occupation. Second, you have a Palestinian authority that I think has reached the nadir of its credibility, both in terms of its capacity to deliver politically and economically for its constituents, but it's also losing control, particularly in outlying areas where the PA never had much authority to begin with, in Nablus and Janine. Third, you do have armed elements, both attached formally to Hamas and Palestine Islamic Jihad, and to Tanzim within Fatah, young men in their 20s who have no recollection of the Second Intifada, who have tremendous grievances, and either on their own or in coordination with um, uh, primarily Hamas and Jihad, are planning and preparing violence and terror attacks. And finally, you have the most extreme right-wing and fundamentalist government in the history of the state of Israel. I'm reminded of a line from John Buchan's early 20th century novel, Green Mantle, about British espionage in the run-up to World War I. He said, there's a hot wind blowing from the east and the dry grasses await the spark. So where does Aaron disagree? The Israeli-Palestinian conflict, in a perverse way, has this capacity to push, 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 but never beyond the point where Israelis and Palestinians would fundamentally so change their realities for the worse that you have enough pain created, even though that pain is asymmetrical, to basically make the status quo unsustainable. It's a, it's a perverse set of balancing mechanisms. Aaron raises another major factor that we mentioned at the start the return of Benjamin Netanyahu as Israel's prime minister, but this time at the head of a coalition government more right-wing than any Israel's had before. While Mr Netanyahu brings years of experience, he also is now governing alongside people who not only don't support a two-state solution, but who hold some extreme views about the treatment of Palestinians. Now I think he's in a different situation. The traditionally risk-averse Netanyahu is in a position where circumstances, by the way, the ones he created on his own, is compelling him not necessarily by design, but by pressure to become more risk ready. But he's under pressure. He's under pressure because he confronts an existential dilemma, which is more important than Iran, more important than his relationship with the United States, more important than Ukraine. And that is his ongoing trial. Indeed, Mr. Netanyahu is facing charges of corruption, bribery and breach of trust. He denies the charges and has tried to fight them every step of the way. After leaving office under a cloud of the court case in 2021, Israel has lurched from unstable government to unstable government. And now he's back in office after the fifth election in four years, and he's found himself some new allies who can help. He's made an agreement with two ministers in particular, you know, whose sensibilities and views run in the direction of 
Jewish supremacy, anti-democratic behavior, homophobia, and racism. And he's given them budgets. He's given them authority. And while he's trying to constrain them, I would say he's, he's hit the pause button. It, it can't hold. This, the, you know, to, to quote Yates, the center can't hold because of the factors I referred to and because of the fact that Bizalal Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gavir um, know that they have leverage over him. And there will be fires lit. The, will they spread? Can you put them out? It just seems to me that it's simply a matter of time before there's an explosion. Hugh also has concerns about this new administration. I think there's perhaps a lot of people, including myself, would have a sense that the previous government was perhaps more attuned towards some of the, the dangers of, uh, from the point of view of Israel, of rising instability uh, and violence in the West Bank and the dangers of continuing to, to weaken and to undermine the PA through those actions. And perhaps more of an ability to, to dial up or down the, the level of Israeli military rage to ensure that things didn't spill over or did, like, that dynamics didn't escalate uh, beyond control. I think with this government, Netanyahu has shown himself in the past able to do that as well. If you look at how he's, how he's engaged with Gaza, which again is, remains on the blockade, but he's also, I think, been more attuned towards these, um, the, the Palestinian dynamics and how to maintain stability. But his margin for maneuver now with, a, with his far-right uh, coalition allies is much more limited. The final bit on this side, I'd say, is there's also something else which is happening, which is previous governments, including previous Netanyahu governments, have seen a value in maintaining the PA and maintaining the status quo, which, broadly speaking, works very well for Israel and allows Israel to get on with settling the territories. This new government with its new far-right members, you know, I think, are much more willing to break things and are much more willing to move beyond the status quo and actually challenge some of the traditional pillars that have allowed Israel to maintain its security control and maintain stability, including uh, challenging and potentially undermining the PA. Ultimately, now though, now that they're in power, the question is, at what point will they be the ones that actually start to call the shots? Like, How much can Netanyahu keep them in line? But, but the final bit, add even more pessimism. You know, If you look at the, the future of the Israeli political spectrum, which goes a bit beyond this, uh, this podcast, but but I would argue that the future of the Israeli political spectrum when it comes to the Palestinians probably looks more like the vision of the far right and Ben Gvir and Smotrich than it does Netanyahu's vision and the vision that's um, dominated Israeli policy for the last, well, since the beginning of the occupation. But what is it that Israel's new far right members of cabinet actually want to achieve? Here's Aaron. I think both of them, Smotrich and Ben Gvir, want to do two things. Number one, bind most of the West Bank, the 60% that, is, that Israeli, the Israeli military now controls, so-called Area C in Oslo, binded permanently to Israel proper, and to take steps that encircle Jerusalem and make any thought of a Palestinian capital, even within a united concept of a united city, because no one is talking about dividing Jerusalem with physical or even political barriers. I think they want to make that permanent. And so this brings us to the role of the international community. While Europe and the US have long backed Israel at the UN and are close security and diplomatic partners, they also support the view that West Bank settlements, home to nearly half a million Israelis, are illegal under international law. 
they support a two-state solution and help fund the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian people. Amid the latest round of violence, the US has called for calm. It's called against provocative acts, like that carried out by Netanyahu's new minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir, when he visited the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound shortly after taking office. The visit stoked anger as Palestinians accuse Israel of trying to take the third holiest site in Islam, also revered by Jews. US President Joe Biden visited and met with Israeli politicians and Mahmoud Abbas, and he left behind key advisors to try and mediate a way to dial down the tensions. I think they made a judgment that the Palestinian issue, even if the administration were to engage in a serious way, I don't mean a one-off trip by uh, the president or even leaving his very capable aides behind for a few days, but a serious effort to work out a set of rules of the road, so to speak. The Israelis undertake X, Y, and Z, both for their own interests and take actions that are resonant with the Palestinians. The Palestinian Authority takes steps X, Y, and Z. They sequence it. They make sure that there's some symmetry and some mutuality, and they wrap it all in in an actual agreement. And this takes not days or weeks. This takes months. Aaron has a lot of experience in trying to get these sorts of agreements. Here's his take. I'd only offer the analogy of the fall of 1996, when Benjamin Netanyahu, against the advice of Shin Bet, opened up the Hasmonean Tunnel in Jerusalem. You ended up with an Israeli-Palestinian confrontation between their security forces. Clinton then invites Mubarak, Hussein, and Netanyahu to Washington. I only know this because I, I was part of this exercise. Uh, We spent three months in Israel and in Gaza and Ramallah negotiating what later became the Hebron Protocol. Now, in hindsight, all of that diplomacy ended up not working, but it avoided major confrontations for three years. But he says it's unlikely that Mr. Biden will take a stand and engage seriously on a topic that diverges significantly with the view of Mr. Netanyahu other than the long-held standpoints like working for a two-state solution. Here's Mr. Biden's Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, on the latest issue. The United States is committed to working toward our enduring goal of ensuring that Palestinians and Israelis enjoy equal measures of freedom, security, opportunity, justice, and dignity. And it's President Biden's firm conviction that the only way to achieve that goal is through preserving and then realizing the vision of two states for two peoples. The United States will continue to oppose anything that puts that goal further from reach, including, but not limited to, settlement expansion, legalization of illegal outposts, move towards annexation of the West Bank, disruption to the historic status quo on Jerusalem's holy sites, demolitions and evictions, and incitement and acquiescence to violence. Here's Aaron again. Presidents don't like to fight with Israelis because of the political costs, let's be very clear, and because of their own views. Biden is much closer to Bill Clinton than he is to Barack Obama. Biden and Clinton are are politicians. They've been good on Israel for their entire careers. 
They have this emotional investment and commitment to the special relationship with Israel. Presidents fight with the Israelis only when they believe that if they use pressure, something could be achieved that was actually positive that would make the fight worthwhile. Think Nixon and Kissinger, three disengagement agreements in the wake of 73 war. Think Carter, Camp David, Egyptian Israeli Peace Treaty. And the, the, the episode I know best, think Bush 41 and James Baker on the way to Madrid. All of them wrestled with Israeli prime ministers and their supporters in the United States. And some of it became pretty nasty. But they all reasoned that if, in fact, they stayed the course, they could end up producing something. And they did. So if there's no political advantage, and the best you can do now with the Israeli-Palestinian issue is to avoid things from getting worse, hard to imagine, not impossible, hard to imagine this administration engaging in a way that really was intense in an effort to, uh, well, again, here, here we get to the issue, in an effort to do what? Create an environment in which you'd have a negotiation leading to an outcome which most people, a two-state solution, think uh, has already gone the way of the dodo. But where does all this leave us in terms of the tension on the ground? Some have already started to call the reality for Palestinians an apartheid system, including prominent Israeli and Palestinian rights organizations, as well as Israel's former ambassador to South Africa, Ilan Baruch. But Aaron's not sure about that. No one actually wants that. If this were a true one-state reality, where the Israelis literally controlled everything, then I think the acceleration toward conflict and toward a much bleaker outcome, even than an Israeli occupation that exists now, would, I think, the process of achieving that nightmarish scenario would be accelerated. It's the three-state sort of the fact that Hamas, the Palestinian Authority, and Israel still retain the capacity to turn up the burner and turn it down, that actually still has this sort of moderating, if you can use that word, moderating impact on you know, keeping this Titanic from hitting an iceberg. Hugh says that with the trend in Israeli politics in recent years, it seems hard to imagine a pro-peace process party emerging and putting talks back on the agenda. In the meantime, you have a grinding reality for many Palestinians. I'm sure everyone wants peace, but it's on whose terms, right? So if you're talking about, I mean, so yes, Israel, well, any Israeli government would love to have peace with the Palestinians if it meant that the Palestinians admitted that they were vanquished, uh, accepted to live under uh, what I would call, and others have called, a, a situation of apartheid. And, but obviously that's not what we're talking about. If you're talking about a peace agreement, negotiated peace agreement based on a two-state solution, in line with international parameters, then I actually don't see any scope for any political party that has any weight emerging or being able to effectively push those positions in the near uh, future. Hugh is ultimately quite pessimistic about the state of affairs and says it's very difficult given the confluence of factors from the situation within the Palestinian political system to the Israeli government to the administration in the US to prevent things from deteriorating. However, Aaron is more confident that despite the dire reality for many, all sides have a track record of coming together at key moments 
to avert an all-out conflict. This was Beyond the Headlines. Thanks this week to Aaron David Miller and Hugh Lovett. We were produced by Arthur Edison and Dua Farid. I'm James Haynes-Young, and if you found this episode interesting and want to get all the latest as soon as they come out, then just hit subscribe in your podcast app. And if you can leave us a review while you're there, it makes all the difference. 